Welcome to the Tokyo Citadel Builders podcast. This show is hosted by three Christian Bitcoin maximalists in Tokyo. We agree on very little except that Bitcoin is money and a tool we can use to help us build a better future. We discuss current topics in Japan and Bitcoin and how our lives are impacted by the growing Bitcoinization of the world. We interview builders on Bitcoin to learn about how Bitcoin can help us push back against government encroachment, enable us to retain financial sovereignty, and empower us to secure ourselves against corporate and government surveillance. Sat by sat, we are building a Bitcoin economy in Tokyo and connecting ourselves to citadels throughout the world. This show is hosted by We Three Gentlemen, Doomer Dash, Meta Mike, and me, Andy. We are a value for value podcast, so if you've enjoyed the show, hit us up with a thousand sat boost on Fountain or show us some love on our tokyocitadel.com website. Connect with us on Twitter and Noster at Tokyo Citadel. And we are live. Um, today, I am with Evgeny, um, who is the founder of SimpleX um, uh, chat application, um, which ha- has, has found some fame recently after Jack Dorsey, um, no less, endorsed it. Um, and so I know a lot of listeners were reaching out and asking about uh, SimpleX. And so we're, I'm hoping to get into that today with um, Evgeny. Um, just to give a little bit of his background. So he founded, um, the, the company was set up in 2021, but the project's actually been going since 2019. Um, and prior to that, um, so one interesting fact I, I found publicly available was that he had actually um, he'd written a very popular um, JavaScript library um, called A A J V, um, which is used by many um, you know large multinational corporations, I believe. And so some of some of the audience who are developers may well be uh, familiar with that. So um, Evgeny, um, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, Dash, thanks a lot for inviting me. It's a privilege. And uh, hello, everybody who is listening. Thank you so much. So I thought maybe um, I know I know I really um, keen to dive into a number of topics with you today, uh, maybe concerning mainly privacy and also, of course, uh, Simplex. Um, but I thought before we did that, if you could, as much as you're comfortable with sharing, just give us a little bit about your background, if you don't mind. Uh, yes, sure. Uh, so to hit all the points, uh, I was born in Russia, uh, and that's certainly a source of controversy for some of our users. Uh, and uh, we immigrated to the United Kingdom 15 years ago with a family for various reasons, but what's happening with Russia right now is not a huge surprise, unfortunately. Uh, and I have not been a career engineer initially. I started and uh, managed various businesses, uh, and I became an engineer. It was always a hobby for me, but I became full-time engineer when I realized this is what I enjoy the most. Uh, 10 years ago now, right? And as you said, I uh, created this hugely popular open source library. And actually, the reason it became popular, I see uh, as a lot of kind of inspiration for what we do now with Simplex Chat. Uh, So it was uh, improving on the same kind of marketing efficiencies that Simplex Chat is trying to improve or Similarly, not the same. Uh, yes, and I also led uh, several engineering teams at, at Mail Online, at a uh, couple startups. So that all certainly helps what we're doing right now. That's it. Thanks. Um, actually, you, you did raise something uh, interesting there that, if you don't mind, I just I'd, I'd like to. Uh, just just quickly dig into. So you mentioned that you hadn't started out in engineering, and you'd um, you'd sort of had that as a hobby, and then you'd later 
um, done that as a profession. Obviously, been you've been very successful um, uh, doing that. But I, I, I just wanted to ask because I, I've, <laughs> I'm also like a hobbyist uh, when it comes to tech, technology and software in particular. I, I did as an ed uh, my educational background was uh, computer science, but my entire life has been more in commercial side, like man you know sales and management, etc. Um, and I, you know, I've always thought of I'd love to. Uh, make the jump and do it professionally but then I always think well but you, you know you, you don't want to make your hobby your job necessarily because you don't know if you'd enjoy it but like would you um, I, I mean obviously it really worked out for you but what do, what, what advice would you have any advice for someone who was in that position who was thinking maybe to to give it a go uh, sure uh, I mean it's not exactly it wasn't exactly a hobby I was educated in uh, physics and mathematics and software engineering was like wasn't part of, it was not such term then right nobody was talking in terms of computer science we studied programming as a means to an end not as a subject itself and i actually learned to program long before i touched the computer at 12 years old right i could program on the paper and the first time i it was like five years before i saw the first computer in my life able to use computer so but but it didn't pay it didn't it wasn't really viable commercially or professionally in my home country. And actually, the first project I did to some company when I was a student was simply not paid for. Uh, and that was a little bit disappointing. Yeah. So, and I was only, I've never done uh, software commercially until last 10 years, other than for my own businesses. I, I, I literally, for every single business I was founding, I was creating software that was used as part of these business operations. So, you, it's not exactly a hobby, right? It's borderline. Uh, <laughs> Self, self-servicing almost, right? So uh, talking about advice, whether you should or shouldn't make hobby a profession, I, I don't know. I, I think I'm a lifetime amateur, right? The second you get, get too deep into it, it loses appeal and interest. You possibly not learn that much. On the other hand, gets into the point of real mastery or expertise in anything requires tens of thousands of hours of doing something. So, and if, unless you do it professionally, just rarely find enough time to, to get to the level of expertise, right? So so I think I think people should do professionally what they enjoy doing. That's it, full stop. Whether it's hobby or not, it doesn't matter really. If you if you if you really see the job of paying bills, it's it's not gonna be super successful. You should see the job as like for me, I don't know. For me, choosing job was always like paying bills was always the criteria to eliminate job firm considerations. So you shouldn't be doing something which prevents you from paying, paying bills, right? But at the same time, you you shouldn't be doing something that you don't enjoy as well, if it makes sense. No, I mean, it makes total sense. So yeah, make, okay. by all means, yeah, make make job make make a hobby job. I think it's a good idea. <laughs> it it does, and I think another reason for the appeal to me is I I dream of the day when I can I can delete my uh, LinkedIn profile, and uh, I you know one one of the I guess kind of I mean, it's probably a fantasy right that I have, but you, you you know I could potentially go and do some kind of work as a developer, uh, maybe as a NIM right, and, and and maintain a level of of privacy that I that I don't necessarily have in my current fiat job, um, but also. So that you know, I could potentially work remotely and you know get paid in Bitcoin and be more of a sort of net, net native citizen of the internet, and that's a little bit of a a uh, you know a, a dream of mine, I guess. But um, and and that kind of leads us in as a bit of a segue into the first a topic which I wanted to discuss with you, um, 
today, Evgeny, which was which was privacy. And it seemed appropriate because to me, it seems that uh, X is, is an application that has been made certainly with privacy in mind. It certainly seems to me, and we'll get into these details, but there's a several advancements that you have made um, in in developing the the app, which which certainly seem to enhance privacy and make it something that any anyone who is privacy minded sh- minded should be looking at as a, as an option for a, for a, for a communications um, app. Um, but but before we get into those details, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about privacy. And um, as, as part of the prep for this show, I had listened to you on the Opt Out podcast with Seth for privacy, um, and I thought you know you, you said some interesting things on there, which I thought maybe we could build on. Um, you spoke about how for you that privacy was a means to an end, um, and also that for, for you that, that most people, if they did want privacy, they, they wanted privacy for the sake of psychological safety, which I thought was a great way of putting it. Um, and, and you also mentioned that you know this, this had been your driver, your primary driver for um, bringing the Simplex um, app to market. So I just, um, if you maybe hand it to you, and, and does, does that accurately summarize your um, sort of high-level thoughts towards privacy and, and anything you'd like to add to that? Sure. Uh, so I think I think uh, technologists uh, have uh, misnamed uh, what many technology solutions provide as privacy, while it isn't. I, I don't. Know, I think it's just like to me. To me, majorities of communication platforms never cross the bar of being private uh, because, like. If you just if you just protect the content of your messages uh, from observers, this is not really privacy. This is security, right? The privacy, by definition, it's a, it's a dictionary definition, right? In human terms, it's it's a state of being alone, really, right? So, like, it's a state when nobody knows what you're up to, what you're doing, and that necessarily includes the privacy of your connections, the privacy of who you're talking with, how frequently, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and uh, the design of majority of communication networks simply doesn't deliver that, right? So, like, yes, messages can be encrypted, uh, but but you're not private, really, right? So, uh, and, and the way uh, marketing operates, the way all many activities they rely on this connection graph to to not necessarily create value for you. So, so to me, privacy necessarily includes uh, concealment of who are your contacts from 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 any third parties? It doesn't necessarily imply anonymity. People conflate these terms, so I may not want to conceal who I am from my contacts, right? So I don't mind my contacts knowing my real identity, and that's fine, right? It's a different story. You may need anonymity separate from privacy, but at the same time, I I don't want anybody else to know who am I talking with, and and that's that's fundamentally what 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 privacy is not just what i tell them but also even the fact right so like uh how do you describe the concept of a private meeting on on signal right so like signal we can talk about it more i don't want to be too harsh or critical but but my view is that signal doesn't provide sufficient protection for for privacy it simply doesn't never cross the bar for me of being private right and literally no other uh, communication platform does sufficiently because I don't know, I spent I spent a big part of my business life in in like transactional business right we were running like property development business and and so so it's very important for example for your business communications is that if you're if you're negotiating to one party and with another party on the same subject you you certainly don't want these two parties to know 
that that you're in negotiation with them, right? So you kind of want this information being concealed, right? <clears throat> so and, and communication platforms simply don't don't provide that. So we wanted to design a network that uh, conceals that. And for example, Simplex Chat has this quality that if I talk to Alice on a platform and I talk to Bob on the same platform. Uh, all they have to go by is that they see the same profile name and there is this incognitive feature, incognitive feature that hides this as well, but they can't prove because they send messages to different addresses. And so they don't have a definitive knowledge that they're communicating with the same person. So I think this quality is very important and there is not a single communication platform that provides it. At least I don't know such platform. Um, so talking about what it means for people, yes, the psychological safety has been quoted by many uh, people we surveyed uh, pretty early on, but I think it also has uh, concepts for real safety for many people, so I wouldn't reduce it down to psychological safety, and it also has uh, direct economic consequences for a large majority of people. I, I, I think, I don't know, to me, like, uh, it was always obvious that the lack of privacy online leads to you spending more money. And when, when ordinary people say, we don't care about privacy, like this platform X can have our data, uh, and at least that's free, what I think they don't realize that this platform X uh, makes, let's say, if, it, if we talk specifically, right, like public information, Facebook and WhatsApp, Meta generates uh, 2022 about 120 billion advertising revenue for 2 billion active daily users. So that means about $60 advertising revenue per user per year. Meta generating this revenue means that probably businesses that pay this money derive at least a value of $100 per user per year of Facebook and WhatsApp and other Facebook products, Meta products. What does it actually mean? Like, where does this money come from? So it's, it's, it can be two things, right? Either they, it's effectively additional profits should be covering that, right? So which means that somehow this money gets extracted from the pockets of ordinary users. And given that the world is not fairly distributed in terms of wealth, it means that people in countries such as United States and United Kingdom and Europe and Japan and Canada would be actually provides a much more profits to the businesses transacting via Facebook or using Facebook data, right? Which may include online retailers and it may not necessarily mean only additional sales made to you. It only, it can also mean uh, targeting prices. So effectively you're paying higher prices for the same goods and services. So, I mean, that, that's just how economics work. I think, I think when, when many people realize that using a free product is not just it's not just because they, they see it as, okay, our data is being sold and that funds our product. That's not how it works, right? Your data is being purchased because you provide value to people who buy your data. And by providing this value, you're using this value, losing this value. It's effectively a zero-sum game. So average Facebook user, average user of Meta product should be losing $100 a year from their budget. I'm not sure that majority of families would be comfortable with this realization, specifically if you realize that uh, it's it's much more than that in, in countries such as the United States, right? So like hundred dollars is average number globally. So that's, 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 that's to, to me, that's very shocking realization. And to me, it means that something, people should do something about that, right? And probably 
stop using the same identities they use on social networks as they use for online purchases, but it's just hard to separate identities. Absolutely. I mean, you, you raised a couple of really interesting points that I'd, I'd like to dig into a little bit. Um, so firstly, you talked about the kind of social graph aspect of privacy, which I think is, is underappreciated. And I'd heard you talk about this on a couple of other shows, and it really, um, I, 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 I thought, wow, this is really important. More people need to know about this. I think, you know, one of the things that you'd mentioned on the different show is that there was a telecommunications executive who had said something like, if, if you made five phone calls, I think it was five or six phone calls. They could pretty much pinpoint who you were based on that, based on basically whom you were speaking to, right? And that's so. You, if you build a social graph of someone and you know whom they're speaking to, it's it's fairly easy to pinpoint them when you get to that number of data points. Um, is so, and and now of course the the simple X it seems. It, the big value prop, the big um, improvement on other competitive apps is that you obfuscate this. You don't you don't present this um, social graph when you use the when you when you use the app, right? So it's impossible for people to link. You know, if you speak to Alison Bob, as you're saying, you're the only one that knows you're speaking to Alison Bob. So uh, someone and 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 out and someone outside. Um, uh, uh, you know, or even Alice and Bob colluding together, it don't they don't necessarily have the information to to, gen to create that social graph, right? So that you protect your anonymity much better um, by, by doing that. And, and you'd also mentioned, you know, how people confuse security and privacy. You know, there's a little bit of confusion maybe with people. For example, when it comes to Signal, you think, well, I'm, I'm, I'm okay because you know, my messages are encrypted, but in actual fact, you're giving away a lot of meta metadata about whom it is you're speaking to. And so people are very easily able to build that social graph about you. Um, so we, we, is, have I correctly understood, you know, your points there? And would you say that was the killer, the killer app with, uh, with Simplex? Uh, in a way, yes. I would. I wouldn't. I wouldn't go into absolutes and security and privacy is not a black and white proposition. So, for example, Signal obviously is a better product in terms of privacy than WhatsApp. There's no denying that, right? And Signal has contributed. So, but and yes, there are lots of metadata that's relevant. And at the same time, uh, while we make best effort to protect social graph of the users in Simplex Chat, it's not a like and, and a lot of criticism of this statement is down to the fact that we are not, we are not trying to protect transport layer. Uh, we say we, we prevent uh, application level identities for the users, right? So like instead of assigning identities to the users, we assign them to connections between the users, multiple identities for each connection. So identifiers, but at the same time, uh, observers can monitor traffic and correlate like there is global traffic patterns that are being observed, etc. So your IP address can be used by the relays to correlate your connections, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right. So there are ways to mitigate it, and a client provides such ways. But th those ways to mitigate this transport level correlation are never free, because obviously, if you create a new Tor circuit for each of your contacts, you would protect your uh, privacy better, but it will hugely increase your traffic and battery consumption and that's not necessarily the right trade-off so i wouldn't go as far as to say that we make it impossible to figure out connection graph at all but i would say that we make it much harder and much more expensive because the, the thing is right so like meta like talking about again how, how private data is used we're not trying to build a solution 
who would make targeted surveillance impossible. So first, we're not necessarily ethically agree with the need for such solution. It's an arms race, and that's, it's not commercially viable, and that's not what we're trying to do here. And second, it's just it's just not not technically viable, right? So like, if there is a dedicated attacker, they will penetrate any privacy and security defenses of any technological solution. And but 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 many ordinary people say, okay, like they, they you know, this kind of logical fallacy, like re reduction to absurdity. They say because absolute solution is not possible, any solution is meaningless. This is which is wrong. This is just a logical fallacy because. The question is not uh, whether the solution is absolute. The question is, what's the cost of the attack? So Meta makes $60 a year per user in advertising revenue, right? And that translates into $10 a year profits for Meta, right? And that creates lots of financial damage. So in order to derive a $10 a year profits, Meta makes you lose $100 a year, right? I mean, that's at least that's my view of economics, right? So, and that's all based on the public, but like accounts and financial information that's published, right? So, all you really need to do is to increase the cost of constructing your social graph by ten dollars per user to make this model not viable. So, right. so, so, yeah. So, so it's, it's like you know, like it's a joke, right? When, when two two friends in the forest and the bear runs at them, and then one friend says starts tying tying his shoelaces, right? And it's just like another says like, why are you doing that? He's you're not gonna outrun a bear. I said, no, I don't, I don't I don't need to outrun a bear. I just need to outrun you. So <laughs> you understand, right? So like in terms of don't, don't, don't be the weakest in the herd, right? Don't be the slowest in the herd. Exactly. Just, yes. So, so so more privacy makes sense or more security makes sense for mass market consumers, even if this is not an absolute protection because they're like behind every privacy and security compromise is economics, right? It's all economical consideration and the cost of the attack is very important. So the, the goal of the technological solution for privacy and for security is not to eliminate the possibility of the attack. And I hear this kind of misconception a lot. Users say it's a lot like, is this protection absolute? Is this protection, nothing is absolute, right? No protection is absolute, it's just impossible. And for every protection, there is a countermeasure, right? And there is always like, the question is cost. The question is, can it be applicable given the economics constraints? Yeah, that, that, I mean, you, again, you've raised uh, some really good points. Um, I, I love that you brought up the logical fallacy that if privacy, you know, if I can't protect myself from the NSA or the CIA, like a targeted attack, um, then what's the point? You know, what's the point in even trying? And it's, it's ridiculous. It is an absolute fallacy um, because, as, as you point out, you know, if you can just make it more expensive to, to, to target you, then, you know, you can protect yourself from a lot of sort of dragnet surveillance um, from the likes of Meta um, or, or, or even, you know, um, you know, state level actors who are, who are, who are not, if it's a non-targeted non attack. And so, so I think it's absolutely worth for everybody to consider um, their privacy. And you also, I mean, your point about the economic value was, was a very good one. And I haven't really um, heard it articulated that, like that before, but I think it would probably help for people to think of it that way, right? So it's almost 
almost like if you protect your privacy, you protect yourself from the companies reaching out and putting their hands in your pockets and taking your money, which is essentially what's happening. And when you mentioned the the economic cost, which is the average of, you know, roughly, let's say, $100 per, per user that, that of revenue that's been generated by the advertising, I actually think it's worse than that because I think what we know from the likes of Facebook, and I know there's been some moves to kind of limit this since the, um, the 2016 election uh, or, or the fallout from that, but it, it's not just economic war how should you call it warfare or, or targeting your your subject to on these platforms it's also a kind of you know brainwashing from you know different state actors right and there's kind of info wars that are playing out across these platforms and so you're not only protecting yourself economically but you're protecting your, your psychological well-being if you ask me um by by not revealing too much information that would it, arm them with the information to kind of to, to know which buttons to press with you to, to make you react in a certain way and that's something I think we've all got to be mindful of when we're, when we're interacting online on these platforms look I hundred percent agree with that but that's not the like area I'm I'm I, I like too much to focus on because I think majority of people don't really care I think I think we we all all technologists are I don't know if it's by design or by coincidence or by some chance, majority of technologists are completely unaware of uh, economics by by the lack of economics education. Uh, reality is you can't train a good engineer without training economics and psychology, right? So like, if you want to have a good engineer, they have to study psychology, they have to study engineering, right? or they have to study economics, right? So these are two uh, absolutely critical and most important ingredients and every in every other engineering discipline other than software people do study psychology economics to some extent right because like imagine designing airplane outside of economics constraint it simply won't fly or will never be built or designing a house or designing a car right economics constraints are extremely important or imagine designing uh, an industrial like engineering object outside of psychology right nobody will buy it somehow we get away with this in software by training software developers who are simply not engineers right they have no idea of economics and they have no idea of psychology or have very limited ideas of that right so and that's the problem because that's what leads to this kind of maximalist thinking like uh, when everything is seen in black and white terms right it's either works or it doesn't work, but the reality is, does it work economically, right? Does it work well enough? Does it work in a way? So that, that's the problem here. So, and, and talking about uh, pragmatism, like majority of, not only engineers are not educated in terms of uh, economics and psychology, they are very much detached from the real world, right? We all live in a bubble in terms of our income, uh, which probably represents two, three percent of the global population. I'm talking about engineers in general, right? So like while majority of people out there, majority of families out there barely make their ends meet, barely they're super focused on uh, like feeding their kids, right? But buying clothes, like even even huge part in America, if you if you move away from East or West Coast, will be in very different economic situation from uh, f from from people living on the coast, right? So, like, the erosion of middle class, the erosion of news coverage, the erosion of economical income. So, I think that these people are much less affected by brainwashing simply because they don't have time for that. And that's why they really don't care that much about brainwashing because you have to have lots of time to be brainwashed, right, on your hands. And if, 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 you, if you are in a survival mode and... 
<clears throat> you, your focus in your life is to make sure that you put food on the table for your kids. It's, 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 it's extremely stressful life. It's, it's, and yet those people still use Facebook to connect to their friends. I think for them, knowledge that they lose uh, money by doing that is very important and much more important than any kind of brainwash. I think, I think, I think reality is like middle class is much more susceptible to being brainwashed because of having too much free time on their hands and not being stressed about paying bills. So sorry if it's harsh to middle class. <laughs> no, I, th- I, th- I think you're right. And that's a very good point. And, and, and we are in a bubble and well, I certainly am. And so um, I, I appreciate yeah. you, um, you making that point because I think, yeah, if, like you say, for the, for the majority of the world's population, um, uh, you know, a hundred dollars out of their pockets is, is a far bigger deal. Um, so yeah. well, I thought, I thought at this juncture, we could maybe just move into some of the specifics of, of simple X and how it can help. And um, and I just thought maybe I could start by I mean I, so I, I have a rough understanding that it's essentially um, it's a relay model um, and so as a user you you know you download the app um, you don't create an account so it's like an accountless system um, it's I, I believe it works on p- um, private public key pair and so um, and then also if you want to connect to people um, it, there's no discoverability within the app because there's no um, uh, persistent um, accounts and so what you would do is you would do it an out of band exchange whereby for example you over, over an alternative app or perhaps over a video chat you would share your QR code or, or, or your link with um, somebody somebody whom you wanted to connect with and then you would be able to create that connection and the, and, and the way that um, it works in terms of passing messages back and forth although to the user it just looks like a regular chat app in fact what you're both doing is you're both going and connecting to relays um, and you're leaving, you know, the messages encrypted in relays, and then the other user is informed of which relay they should go to to retrieve that data, um, and that they can unencrypt it with the keys that were provided in the initial exchange, and 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 and, and so on and so forth. And that's how users. Um, um, would 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 connect and then communicate, and then an interesting. Uh, facet of that and we, we touched upon it a little earlier but it's because you're using different public key, uh, private key pairs uh, for different exchanges with different people certainly if you're using the incognito mode you know it means that um there's, there's just there's just no way to let, i mean leaving the net the transport obviously you know if, if you were to study ip um uh, someone's IP, you, you maybe could make some correlations, but at the application level, um, there's, there's, it's very difficult for somebody to to correlate different um, chats that you're having with different people, um, and, and that's what kind of protects your so, or keeps your social graph um, uh, private. That gives you a degree of privacy. Is is that? Um, and, and obviously, that's you know a very rough summary. Um, I'm hoping maybe that'll help some of the users just to just to help get them in the mindset. But I'm hoping I can maybe hand over to you and, and you can give us a little bit more of a um, uh, you know if I've made any mistakes please feel to correct them but also just give us a little bit more technical detail on on on, on how it works uh, yes Dash. uh yes i think it's i think you're explaining it better than me in in a in a nutshell uh there are obviously lots of uh, details that add to that to, to those productions so and yes it's it's critically important differentiation of the design is that there's nothing uh outside of a user device that uniquely identifies the user to the network and relays effectively provide the transport layer for this network 
but at the same time, relays do not form the network, right? So relays don't talk to each other. They don't know about each other's existence. So effectively, for each content you have in the network, you have to choose the relay you will use to receive the messages. And so your content does the same. And while relays, so talking about transport, I wouldn't make it a, a, a major, like it's, yes, it is an issue that transport layer can be correlated, but it can be correlated by relays only. So observers of those relays would not see too much in terms of the metadata. So first we use fixed size blocks when we send messages. So uh, each, what doesn't matter what you send, it may be a reaction or message update or text message or images. So every single block that is sent by, and, and files are sent through a different protocol now. So they're sent in fixed 16, 16 kilobyte size blocks, right? So and content is padded, there's actually multiple layers of padded. So whenever there is a layer of encryption, there is also a padded to a fixed size, uh, which means that if, if an observer of, if somebody observes relay traffic and tries to correlate by packet size, they wouldn't be able to get much useful information from the packet sizes because they fixed packet sizes. Also, we may design in such a way that the identifier used to send messages to relay and identifier used to receive messages from the relay, they're different. Uh, and also the outgoing traffic of the relay has additional layer of encryption inside CLS tunnel. So let's say if attacker somehow managed to compromise CLS, maybe some future vulnerabilities we don't know about. Maybe there is some existing vulnerabilities we don't know about. So even if TLS, uh, we, we use TLS, we use strong cipher specifically, and we use the same mechanism to avoid many middle attacks as Tor does, on TLS layer, but let's say if TLS nevertheless is somehow compromised and attacker can observe the traffic inside TLS, TLS itself is encrypted tunnel, right? It's encrypted traffic. It provides its own layer of encryption. So, but if an attacker can compromise this TLS traffic, they wouldn't see the same identifiers or ciphertext in incoming and outgoing traffic because identifiers are different. And on the way out, relay applies additional layer of encryption to the, to the destination. So there would be no correlation by the content, even inside CLS tunnel. So the only thing that's left to correlate by is time. Time you send the message, it lands on the relay because relay is a very low latency thing. So if the receiving client is connected, then obviously the message will be outgoing. So if relays have relatively low traffic, then it's easier to correlate incoming and outgoing traffic just to see uh, by the message time, right? And, and the way for clients, for users to mitigate, we need some additional layer of it. Obviously, they can just agree to use it at a different time, right? Because uh, unlike peer-to-peer -peer network that require most likely, most often users both to be online, people don't have to be online at the same time. You send message asynchronously, it's received asynchronously. So if you want to avoid time and correlation, in addition to using Tor, which would protect, give more than enough protection to your tra transport layer, you can also agree different times. So effectively, in this case, any transport layer correlation becomes pretty much pointless if that communication hygiene is followed. But again, whatever, whatever communication hygiene required usually makes it not followed by a majority of users. So they're not targeting like this as a main priority for the design. So we're trying to build a mass market product, which would be uh, usable and which would provide, which would effectively make this uh, understanding who talks to whom much more expensive on scale. One thing that's worth mentioning here also that relays are have 
temporary nature in the connection, right? So for example, if you start, if you start talking with you on the given relay, we can later move this conversation to another relay without losing the continuity of the conversation. Currently it's manual. There is a button in the app that says switch receiving address. We're planning to automate it. So like all conversations are migrated from relay to relay without users doing anything like on a monthly basis, let's say. Uh, and we also plan to add redundancy. So there is a secondary channel in case the first relay uh, gets unavailable or just loses the data or something like this. So all, all these measures make uh, transport level correlation even by relays a sort of, of limited value, right? So you don't have a long-term view on your communication graph. All you have is some fragments of this graph. And that kind of provides value to the end users by protecting this information. Hope it makes sense. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. I wondered as well if we could dig into a little bit more about the relay model. And so I became aware of the relay model recently because I got into Nostr, and I'm hoping we can talk a little bit about Nostr later. Um, but what I wanted to just focus on for now is the specific, you know, why you chose the relay model versus something like peer-to-peer, -peer, for example. And I think it's probably got something to do with the timing, correlation, avoiding that, and asynchronous communication. <laughs> but but um, maybe just give us a summary on, on all of the benefits or maybe some... And, and some of the trade-offs maybe with um, with the re relay model versus other models like peer-to-peer? Uh, peer-to-peer uh, -peer networks usually, uh, I, I'm saying usually because I, I kind of allow for the possibility for these problems to be overcome. I'll, I'll, I'll list all the problems, but I haven't seen them overcome. So, so first, uh, Peer-to-peer -peer network means that you need a network-wide address to deliver messages. So you can theoretically build a network when you provision a different address per contact, and uh, you can effectively have separate identity for each content, and that would give you similar quality to what we have, right? So like you, instead of creating uh, using the same address, you would use a different address and that would kind of provide similar similar level of privacy. It's not been done, right? So Kutch, for example, I don't know if you've seen this app called Kutch, which I think is like probably the most private thing that exists, uh, but very much unusable. They, they, they allow you to manually create different profiles and effectively they use Tor as a... As, as a transport layer and, but that's, that's an interesting set of choices because I think like having Tor as a mandatory thing to use is kind of a controversial decision, right? Because there, there are, it, it depends on your threat model. For some users, it's a fantastic choice and it's the right choice. For some users, it's not a best choice. So we always wanted to, to use Tor as a transport, as an optional transport layer and not necessarily as something that everybody would want to use. Uh, the bigger problem with peer-to-peer -peer networks is that you can, you need to be online at the same time, right? The, the, the solutions that allow you to temporarily store messages on other nodes are usually very complex and unreliable, and you don't really know who stores your messages and expose your privacy even further. So you, and majority of, again, I'm saying majority, I don't know a single peer-to-peer -peer network that allows you to deliver messages while, send messages while the recipient is off, offline. So it effectively says recipients offline, you can't send messages. Correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe maybe you know some peer-to-peer -peer solution that that solved this problem, but I haven't seen any effective solutions to that. 
because another problem with peer-to-peer networks is because uh, it's fully connected network, right? You can reach any node in the network one way or another, potentially through several hops. Uh, it allows for uh, several types of network-wide attacks when the whole network can be attacked. Uh, and, and the most uh, well understood is civil attack when when malicious nodes try to overwhelm the network and subvert its functioning. Uh, and the second type of attack is uh, rebroadcast denial of service. Effectively, when, when, when nodes start to flood the network with traffic, also making it completely dysfunctional. Uh, and the only effective solutions that have been tried is some sort of proof of work, which with various level of efficiency have been adopted by various networks or what Tor, Tor, Tor is peer-to-peer -peer network, but they ended up introducing centralized authority. And central authority seems like the way, the, the go-to solution for many peer-to-peer -peer networks. So I don't know, overall, when we look at peer-to-peer -peer network, it, it didn't seem to deliver this kind of level of fragmentation into the network and the same level of centralization, right? Because you still have a centralized address space and network. You still have nodes and nodes have to choose the address and network. And these addresses belong to to some centralized address space. And, and that's what we wanted to avoid, right? So obviously we use IP address and space on a transport level, but that's that's a difference, right? We don't have any centralized address and space on the application level at least. And that seemed like a good quality. So so that, that was the main reason to to use uh, some intermediaries between between network nodes, like users are network nodes, and there are some proxies between them or relays you can call them or servers. Uh, it, it, all, it all really means the same. I think uh, Noster and we choose to use the term relay because it somehow positions them differently from the servers. Because when, when people hear the word server, they usually think, okay, it's something that holds my data that is there to provide me a service, right? So it's actually like a federated model, like matrix or a mail or whatnot. And relays are sort of more transient role and they're not really providing you any data stories or anything, but it's some sort of connectivity solution. So yeah, it feels like it's a better overall trade-off in terms of network stability and fragmentation. And I'm using the word fragmentation as a good thing, right? The, the quality that the network can function as several isolated segments without which don't even know the other segments exist is a good quality for the network and when segments can connect at will through the nodes when it's needed but they don't need to be interconnected fully so like isolated segments of subnetworks can exist that 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 works for some existing networks but it doesn't work for most peer-to-peer -peer networks right so like if you if you fragment uh most peer-to-peer -peer networks they would not be functioning this is a really important point, and I and I had heard you mention this on on another show, where you said um, by your definition, for example, um, most if not all sort of blockchain based like cryptocurrencies, for example, are not actually are not actually decentralized, and the reason being is because as you pointed and you point out, I believe very very accurately, if um, you have fragmentation, for example, in in the Bitcoin on the, with the Bitcoin blockchain, that is a an existential threat to Bitcoin, right? Because the 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 net Network has to remain in consensus, or, or the whole thing breaks down. Um, you know, or at least you'd have a chain split. Um, and and so you know, and, and and people maybe don't don't 
consider that um, option. But then you have things like the Great Firewall of China, and you you would imagine that the uh, Communist Party of China would love nothing more than to shut the ch Chinese internet off from um, you know the rest of the world. And, and in, in that case, you know you would potentially have a chain split in, in in Bitcoin, right? You'd have Chinese Bitcoin and the rest of the world Bitcoin, and this would be a disaster for for, for Bitcoin. And so, what, one of the properties I love in Bitcoin is that um, you know I think I think the people in Bitcoin understand that, and I think that's one of the reasons that Bitcoin, for example, has 10 minute block times um, and also small blocks, because the idea of Bitcoin is you have to be able to survive in a you know very hostile environment, potentially like a war zone or, or, or in, in China when there's a, a draconian firewall. Um, and you get these more naive implementation, blockchain implementations who come along and say, oh, well, we're faster than Bitcoin. But it's like, okay, and then we've got to block every second. And it's like, well, yeah, but what, what, if, what if you're in a war zone? What if, what, if there's a, what if there's fragmentation in your network? What's going to happen to your... Um, you know your consensus in that case now i so it's, it's it's fascinating that you you brought that up and i i think also with with chat apps it's in, it's important and, and and this relates to nostra as well that you don't need that global consensus right and so you know everyone's maybe got their subjective view of um you know com conversations and, and that's fine for for a communications app because um you know, and we'll get into. I know Nost is a little bit different because it's kind of like a public chat out in the open. It's the complete opposite of uh, uh, of Simplex in, in in many ways. But but the point is that um, you know um, the, the, this this requirement for for to, to you know to be resilient in in a fragmented network is is there is very critical. And I think what you're saying is that that the relay model. Um, helps helps with that and i also believe that if people want they can spin up their own simplex um, relay right correct yes and we made it very simple from very early days so we when even like i think the 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 option to use your own servers with simplex chat up was literally the second release right because it was a very kind of uh, important philosophical position that we should really not build a centralized network and everybody should be able to run the servers and use those servers with their ops. Uh, but that doesn't prevent you connecting to other people who use like our servers or any other servers. So it doesn't mean that you uh, cannot, like the whole network can be unified, but on the on the relays level, it's, it's highly fragmented, right? So like, uh, but you can still connect to a user. So yeah, it was very important. Uh, it's interesting, actually, like if you look at uh, all the cryptocurrency space, uh, I I can tell you I spent, uh, I, I think Bitcoin still plays a dominant position. I mean, I mean, in terms of if you look at like market capitalization, it's number one with the second place being very remote. And if you look at uh Transactions and volume. I think it's it's probably number two these days, or is it still number one? I think USDT has surpassed a little bit at some cases, right? Because um, it it may be. Yeah, I know. I so the the, the way that we typically think about it in our in our community is that um, you know there's Bitcoin and there's everything else and the shit coins, right? And mm -hmm. um, and we we tend to think of those two as separate. And so. Yeah, I think anything kind of shit coiny these days, like people who are doing the DGN, you know, um, offshore leverage trading, and they're buying all these these you know NFTs and what have you. I th I believe most of that is done in Ethereum or, or as you say, Tether um, yeah. these days. Um, but yeah, I, I would like to think for serious applications, um, you know, Bitcoin is the dominant um, cryptocurrency. Obviously, you've you've got places like El Salvador, um, where you know the you, you, in theory anyway. I mean, um, uh, the leg legislation was passed there that that mandates that um, um, 
businesses accepted as payment. So in theory, you can use Bitcoin, you know, throughout the entire country of El Salvador. The, the practical reality is not quite there yet. Um, but yeah, so that's the, uh, the but, but yeah, we, we, we tend to, well, obviously I'm biased as a Bitcoin maxi, but that's, that's, that's how I tend to think of it. No, but I think, I think there is a reason for this maximalism because Bitcoin uh, solves one problem and it solves it really well, right? So like, the, the Bitcoin was created on the premise to enable uh, value transfer economically and relatively fast and uh, without any centralization or control. And I think it solved this problem. It also solved, uh, in doing that, it solved the problem of wealth preservation as well, right, through the limited supply. So, like, yes, there are some currency value risks, but... Uh, for for all real applications where Bitcoin is really widely used, this 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 price fluctuations are not that important, right? And actually, and it's also used as a speculative asset as well, more and more, right? So while Ethereum trying to be an application platform, I think they kind of excited lots of software engineers and they really split engineering community because, like, I, I look at this space obviously, right? There's no way I could not have looked. I spent probably six months uh, around 2017 playing with Ethereum, or and thinking. But, but fundamentally, I think I think blockchain. I think blockchain with a centralized consensus simply cannot be a viable application platform because it lacks the qualities that any application platform needs, such as mutability, such as the ability to erase the data, such as the ability to exist in a fragmented state. And the whole kind of what makes a blockchain model valuable for value transfer and for uh, financial transactions makes it absolutely unacceptable for general purpose application platform. And I'm not even talking about like costs of operation or latency. Latency doesn't matter. You can improve the latency as much as you like. And cost doesn't matter. You can try to reduce costs. But you cannot solve the fundamental problem of being able to erase your data from, from store. Like imagine you have a database, but you can't erase the data. Like, I mean, how many applications? It simply doesn't fit the compliance requirements of majority of applications and the legal requirements, et cetera, et cetera. Right? And also there's been like about blockchains that can be used as application platforms, again, Ethereum is a primary, right? There's been a research around the same time, 16, 2016 or 2017, uh, that was demonstrating that majority of what you call other blockchains, uh, <laughs> they, they are already infested by the information that's illegal to possess. They don't need to name the names, right? Uh, and why it happened and why it was allowed to happen, but I, I don't know how it could have been prevented. Uh, but but effectively, if you if you have a copy of Ethereum on your computer, you've been technically you're in violation of legislation of hundred odd countries just through the fact that you store information that's illegal to possess. And yeah. and, it's and it's an interesting question that the the, the community of uh, enthusiasts uh, don't like to discuss. They try to avoid it, but to me, it was like a Deal breaker. I say, okay, you can't delete the data. It's already infested. There is nothing done to prevent this infestation. There is simply no solution how we can remove this data from the historic record. And that, that therefore, uh, it's not a viable application platform, full stop. And so why it's still considered today, like why a blockchain with immutable centralized history of changes to this date is considered viable as a general purpose application platform is completely puzzling to me like i mean there's just like no logic and that no common sense 
Yeah, I mean, the, the only reason to have a blockchain, in my opinion, is to make a seizure and censure resistant um, money, which is Bitcoin, yeah. right? And so, if because it's an incredibly inefficient way to, you know, to have to have a database. And as you say, like, so 99.9% of block, so-called blockchain applications, you know, other, other, other projects, I think, could be replaced by an SQL database. Um, but, but I think the difference is that, you know, blockchain gets VCs excited, right? Or, or it did do, at least, until the FTX crash. And so, I think that's why we, we've seen, we see that noise in every hype cycle, in every sort of bull market cycle. Um, and I'm sure we'll see it again. But, yeah, well, in, in Bitcoin, I think we, t we tend to avoid that. And like you say, I think Bitcoin has solved one thing well, which is, you know, if I'm, if I'm in a country where I'm being persecuted and I need to get my wealth out, I need to leave that country, you know, it's, it, Bitcoin's a pretty good bet to, to, to have Bitcoin and either have that on a maybe a hardware wallet you take with you or maybe you just memorize the 12 words. And then when you get to the other, you know, just to a safe location, you can, you can, you can sort of build your life back up again. And you can't really say that with about many assets. And well, certainly with the legacy um, fiat system, I mean, you, you, you probably, you, you, you may, I don't know, be seeing this as, as, as someone um, with, with, with Russian background. But one thing I was shocked to see was how Russian assets were frozen um, as a result of the, you know, the Ukrainian uh, business and what have you. Um, you know, but it, see, it seemed like many Russians were caught up in a net, which, the, you know, they were not, they were not, they ne not necessarily had any culpability for or, or you know, responsibility for. And, and yet they, they were punished. And, and, but the very fact that that could happen, right, that the people's assets could be frozen, it was a great concern for me and I think for a lot of people and I think a wake-up call as well that we need something which is resistant to you know these this this kind of unilateral you know this Washington th um uh bullying which well of course it depends on your politics and we can argue um who, who are the bad guys but it seems like you know if, if washington doesn't like you they're able to to freeze your funds and it's not only washington right we saw that with the canadian truckers and the, and the canadian government um and so yeah I, I think that's that's the problem that needs solving and 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 that's why we need blockchain um but for most of the things we we, we could probably uh, uh do without it um, I did. I did want to um, talk to you a little bit, uh, just just on this topic. I, I don't want to dwell on it too too long, because I. You, but um, I, I, mo I noticed that you spoke at MoneroCon, 2023. It was, you gave a very interesting talk in, in introduction to to Simplex. Um, and I, I have a lot of respect personally for the Monero community. I, I get some, um, <laughs> um, you know, uh, people 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 laugh at me for it a little bit in 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 our Bitcoin Maxi community. But I, I feel like at least the Monero people, um, you know, they're sincere people. They they obviously value things like obviously value privacy um and, and I, f I feel like they're very interesting um and you had mentioned though during your talk that uh, you were looking maybe to do some kind of integration with uh with i think it was micropayments or or, or i you didn't go into details but i wondered have you have you looked at what nos the nosta guys have done with the zaps and the lightning integration and is that is that of any any interest to you or any any comments there? We, we have, yes. We have and we are considering various ways. So I, I really kind of am cautious to make payments a first-party citizen in communication and even an application platform. The reason for that, so, so I'm interested in sort of like uh, composability, right, and some sort of integration layer between messaging and payments rather than about making Messenger effectively a place for payments. So for example, we may do we may, we may do what Mustard did. I'm not excluding this possibility. We're just looking at options. I'm just looking at options. So in the first instance, what what I was looking is 
something that doesn't exist, right? Uh, so you you want to have ability to transfer value and there are existing solutions for that. So why do you even need the messenger, right? So why do you want a uh, messenger to even participate in payments? The reason for that is that there is a lot of friction, right? So you have to somehow pass your payment details and there is a room for mistake. And uh, you have to, you don't want to advertise because some, some people offer the solution. You just advertise your payment details on a profile, but, but we don't walk around with our bank account numbers like written on our t-shirts, right? So anybody can send us money. It's kind of not what we do in the real world. And it has uh, also risks, right? So if you advertise your payment details, it's, it's, it's some kind of opportunity for fraud for you, right? So you want to share your payment details only with the parties who you expect the payment from, right? So, so in real world, there is some communication protocol that, I don't mean like formal communication protocol, I mean informal communication protocol, how we agree payments, right? So for example, we agree service and I send you invoice and invoice includes my payment details and I need to transfer those payment details into the payment application and the payment application then needs to make the payment, but I can also make a mistake, right? And I won't automatically get the information from you. Then you have to confirm me that you received the money, et cetera, et cetera, right? So this is all like there are multiple points for error. So so we thought, I, I was always thinking that the messaging applications should focus on what they do well is effectively communication protocol, right? So not touch payments, but provide a communication layer for payments systems, which automates that, which automates sending the invoice, passing the payment details, validating that payment happened, et cetera, et cetera, and making it all part of the conversation as opposed to, to being out of band of the conversation. So in this case, for example, you approach some service provider, they offer you a service or a product. Uh, you say, yes, I want this. They send you invoice, you tap the button on invoice, Payment somehow happens. That's kind of, I think, I think to me, uh, the, the understanding that this is the magic that people want comes from me leading the technology team at one of the startups. That, that's highly relevant, I would say, for how people want to experience purchases and payments. So customers were finding the retailer on, via the Instagram, and then uh, Instagram was sending this into WhatsApp conversation and sales agents were talking to customers and then they had to send the invoice and that's where the whole experience was breaking down because obviously whatsapp doesn't give you a way to request or receive payment so we have to create a special web page that was effectively invoice was sent as a link you tap the link you see what you're buying how much does it cost etc etc you, you click pay on the web page it wasn't terrible but it was a little bit fragmented experience so I think I think in, in, in and, and this whole idea of buying things via chat seems like extremely like future is already here, just not evenly distributed yet, like this famous quote, right? So because people were paying a huge premium on the price or uh or were buying much more uh because because of being able to do it via the chat, right? Yeah, I, I would say with, with Bitcoin and Lightning, there are still several privacy issues which would probably be of great concern to to you and your user base. And so you'd have to proceed with caution. But I would say that um, I would recommend maybe looking at Albi, ALBY, um, and Mutiny Wallet, if you're familiar with those two. They, they, they have enabled this, um, this kind of integration in Nostra such that you can, within the Nostra app, um, you, you can make 
micropayments to people. You know, you, for example, if somebody posts something you find funny, you can just send them um, as many satoshis as you want. Actually, you can you can define that. But for example, you can just send them a hundred satoshis. You know, or um, um, uh, but I, I've actually used it to pay somebody. So there's there's somebody I buy coffee from. In, in in our group and um i just i just made the payment through through nosta just because it was convenient right because we were connected and um so pr probably not the best for privacy um there are definitely privacy trade-offs and implications but it's it was it was very convenient to make that payment it felt very natural and i feel a lot of people in the nosta space are, are very excited about this kind of um you know this native integration with 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 bitcoin and with lightning so um yeah um we, caveats with the privacy but certainly it's something may, maybe you could look at to um you know to um I, see how they, I, I, how I, maybe, I maybe didn't explain too well. So I was trying to explain that messaging is a very convenient medium to negotiate the payments, but I just think that payments should stay where they are, like in specialized payment apps. So I was more thinking uh, to have some sort of more open-minded integration that is completely agnostic to what is the currency or what is the payment network and effectively some sort of a protocol that runs on device between the messaging app, doesn't have to be Simplex Chat, can be any messaging app, and the wallet app, doesn't have to be Albi or Mutiny or anything really, it can be Monero wallet or it can be banking app that sends real dollars, doesn't matter. So effectively, there is some sort of communication between payment providers and messaging providers on the device without leaving the device uh, that uh, facilitates this whole kind of experience uh, of agreeing, accepting, and confirming the payments that currently happen manually in the real world, if it makes sense. Yeah, I see. So it would be more like, you know, you'd, ne you'd negotiate the payment um, with it, obviously, when you're communicating within the app. And then when it came to making the actual payment, you want to be as agnostic as possible. And then, uh, but, but kind of link out to whatever app that that, that user would choose to, to then make that payment, yes. right? I, I, yeah. And this model makes us not the payment provider. It, uh, it removes any compliance risks. Because the second you start providing payment capabilities, you're immediately bumping it in some sort of red tape because uh, you, you're providing payments, right? So like tomorrow you may be liable to do some sort of know your customer because of that. And that's definitely not where yeah. I want to be, right? So if, if they're not uh, providing payments, they're not doing actual payments and they just provide some simple automation layer to send invoices and payment addresses and confirmations that payment happened and they are presented conveniently in a chat UI, I mean, it's complex, right? There's lots of kind of mm. protocol design and implementation. It's 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 probably more complex than integrating a given payment network. Mm. But but I think that's something that our users would appreciate more than than just integrating mm. a single network because they they like you know like in your community, Bitcoin is a good thing and everything else is a bad thing. In Monero community, <laughs> Monero is a great thing, everything else is a bad thing. And in some yeah. other community, every simple like every simple mm. single mm. cryptocurrency integration would be sim seen as a betrayal of privacy, et cetera, et cetera. So mm -hmm. that creates a huge digital divide. And mm. I, I'm trying to drive the middle of this road, right? However dangerous it may be and not participate in this divide. So I think I think there is a value and a place for some general purpose payments integration for communication ops. And that's, that's what we're thinking. I think that's smart. Yeah, I, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so yeah, um, and I... I've just I've, I had a follow up question on that, but um, if I remember it, I'll 
I'll come back. Um, I think it was Nostra related, actually. I think I think what I'd like to do, actually, maybe, maybe we can move on a little bit from the from the cryptocurrency stuff. But I wanted to go back, maybe to the relay point. And one question I did want to ask you because I know a difference between Nostra and Simplex is um, in in the, in the Simplex relay model, um, you deliver a message to a relay, and then the, your counterparty, the person you're ch chatting to, uh, collects that message, you know, from the relay. And then, I, you know, my understanding is there's no persistence, so that message is then removed from from the relay. Um, then this contrasts with Nostra because in Nostra, whatever I um, send out to to the relays, um, it, it persists on that relay forever. Um, is 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 my is my understanding of um, of the way Nostra works, and um, and so you know, and obviously that's probably there's there's something inherent there in Nostra being a sort of one to many. You're kind of broadcasting a message to, to all your follow up people who choose to follow you. Um, but do do you? I mean, do you have anything to say about that difference? Is it? And and, and do you do you think that? I mean, it sounds like, for example, Simplex would be far in, far easier to long term run your own node because you don't have to worry about the huge kind of storage demands versus Nostra, um, and do do you, do do you have like any any opinions there on on like Nostra may struggle to scale because of that, and and and, and any kind of um, thoughts you have you have there? No, I, th I think Nostra again. Uh, what made people so excited about Nostra is it's very focused design that tries to solve one problem and solve it really well. And I think. Uh, what we have as a challenge for our design, we potentially, like Messenger is a very complex application that has to, by its nature, solve multiple problems, right? And to make messaging experience viable, uh, you you can't just solve one problem, right? And we, over this last year, we've learned like like lots of features that are absolutely requirable, required to to make it viable products for many people, right? So so that I, I kind of, in a way, even envy Nostra design because it can remain so simple and I hope it will remain so simple because the purpose that Nostra was created is to, as you said, broadcast your content uh, to multiple people who can follow your content and it's intended to be public and it's intended for public consumption and distribution and it's inevitably tied to your identity, <clears throat> which may or may not be seen as a good thing. Uh, so, so I, th I think I think that's 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 the model, and it solves it really well. I don't think the storage size is a concern. We live in a world when storage gets cheaper and cheaper, and I think the the, the speed with which people create content is still slower than than how the storage grows, right? So I think, like, remember what technology was ten years ago, right? We now have terabyte storages and mobile phones right so and uh if you if you need you can have multi multiple terabyte storage in the cloud and like 10 years down the line you'll have to be able to have petabyte storages in the cloud and 20 years down the line you'll have you may be able to have petabyte storage in your pocket device <clears throat> so i i don't think this is a problem right i think it just solves the problem that was created to solve sorry <clears throat> And, and Simplex was created to deliver a message, as we said, to the end user. The, the, model is, the model is slightly different. Users don't pick up the messages. Messages get pushed to the users. So users, when, when, when the user goes online, they, they know the relays they use. They connect to them, say, hey, we have this message in queues uh, here. And we, when you have a message, push it to us, right? So they, they keep this connection open. It, it's kind of free. 
as, as opposed to pool model. So effectively, uh, simplex relay work as notification servers, effectively. So they deliver messages when they're available. Other than that, they just keep the socket open and periodically send ping mess- messages to, to keep the connection alive. So that that's that's pretty efficient for low latency network because if if they if the client had to pull every single relay it may have connection it would create a huge amount of traffic. So with with Nostra relays you 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 use them in a very different model. I, th- I think the biggest from the privacy point of view I think the biggest problem of Nostra design is that you 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 publish content that you sign. So this digital signature is I see as a much bigger problem of design than, than, than anything else. Because fundamentally, like what you want when you participate in the community, you want to have some level of deniability in having participated in this community, right? Uh, we live in an interesting world, right? Freedom of speech is constantly under attack. The Overton window keeps shifting. What was uh, appropriate to say yesterday may become inappropriate to say tomorrow, right? So you kind of want to have uh, ability to participate in a community privately, uh, which may seem as a contradiction, and we didn't realize how much people actually want private participation in communities when when they just started to create communities on Simplex platform, which is not 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 was not built for that. Right, so like communities are not yet working very efficiently on Simplex. Uh, and in Nostra, your participation is public, and you don't have deniability because you use your public key that is strongly tied to your identity, and you sign every single piece of content with this key. So there is long-term, not removable proof that you have posted this message, and it's not just the proof to the recipients, uh, but the proof to the third party as well. This is, by the way, the most misunderstood uh, thing about off-the-record messaging. You know, this kind of uh, the family of protocols branded as off-the-record, right? So like. When you use symmetric encryption instead of asymmetric encryption, and you don't sign the content you've sent, so effectively, uh, recipient has the proof that you sent the message, but only because they know that they didn't do it. So when you receive the message in Signal or in Simplex chat, you know that I sent it to you, not because you can prove it to a third party, but you can prove it to yourself because you know you didn't send the message, and therefore I sent it. That, that's as simple as that, right? But but if you present this message to a third party, you can't prove that they sent it because it's encrypted by symmetric key that you also have. That's that's by the way when when session migrated from double rated protocol, this kind of uh, repudiation or of the record messaging also became a collateral damage, right? And this is also not provided by Nostrad because like the 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 relays identify you by you providing digital signature on the content, and that serves as a long-term proof, not just to your subscribers, but to anybody who finds this content that you actually wrote it. That's that I see as the biggest uh, biggest problem with such designs that that doesn't give deniability to the publishers. Thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the summary there is there may be some kind of on the surface similarities between Simplex and, and Nostra in terms of the relay model, but in, in, fact, in actual fact, they're very different uh, protocols, kind of uh, designed for very different purposes, and I, I think that makes a lot of sense. That, with that said, I noticed a, a few of the devs on Nostra. Uh, I think it was Will. 
of Damas uh, Damas fame. Yeah. So he does the iOS. So he he actually mentioned explicitly he was looking at Simplex, and he he actually said he thinks that the DMs uh, or private messages on Nossa were a big mistake. That they're of course not private. This is it's a it's 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 a well known fact that you, the messages themselves are encrypted, but you you can see who has been speaking to whom. Um, so talking about giving away your social graph, I mean it's it's um, it's it's very very obvious on Nostra. It's a really bad idea to to direct message on on, on Nostra for most people. Um, but um, but it was I thought it was interesting that there, that Will was looking at this, and I, I, I like like I just wondered if you had and if you'd no, or if you'd noticed that because I know I know you have your own Nostra account now, the Simplex account on on Nostra, and and do you think there's a potential for any kind of synergy between the two, or is it just a case of you know uh, Nostra users should use Simplex uh, as, a, as a separate app for for when they want to keep their uh, communications and their metadata private? And so you know you, you need two apps. Uh, look, I'm not I'm not a maximalist. Like I'm I'm very I think we just for, for the lack of time we didn't manage to discuss discuss any possible collaboration deeper here. And uh, like uh, there are multiple ways, right? So Nostar absolutely can use Simplex protocol and make either use our libraries open source or make their own implementation uh, for exactly the same protocol or similarly designed protocol. Because again, so like, you know, like every single open protocol eventually gets diverged, right? So like, so it's all possible. It's all possible options. And uh, what should happen, I honestly don't know yet. So I think we, we should just find time to engage if they want to and see if we can help in some way or what level of integration is desirable or or how it should work, right? So, for example, maybe like because there are multiple multiple levels are possible from super lightweight integration when effectively to send direct messages on Nostra, you have to have Simplex Chat app installed, right? It's possible, why not? And then Nostra effectively serves as a discoverability layer for Simplex Chat and vice versa, right? It's, it's a possible it's a possible technological approach. The advantage of that, you would have all your conversations in the same place. Or uh, if they will be aiming for the full uh, protocol level compatibility, it's obviously a high bar, but still it's achievable. Then they can have either using our library or their own implementation. Potentially, people may want to be able to migrate the charts between the app. It's also possible, right? So we just, I think, I think, it, I think what's needed is to have some sort of brainstorm about what we're trying to achieve here. What 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 is desirable to achieve? I don't I don't think direct messages were a mistake on Nostra because whenever people see public content, they they want to uh, send messages to the authors of this content, and as long as you know that uh, this information, like the metadata, can be visible, well, then maybe it's not it's not a terrible sin, right? You're not gonna share private information. So, so yeah, I wouldn't go as far as to say that building direct messages was was a mistake. It was a stage, right? So, like they they they, they now say, okay, we, we still want more private messages than what we have now. That that's great, right? So, like, and there are multiple ways forward, and we can help here. I, I don't have answer right now. What's the right solution here? But but only the realization that the spectrum of possible solutions is quite large.
That, thank you, Evgeny. That, that makes sense. Look, I want to be respectful of your time here. So I, and there's, there's a million things I wanted to ask you, but I'm, I'm going to try and wrap this up with, um, with two or three f final questions. But, but you, just, just to wrap up on the, on, on the simple X um, part, there's a couple of things I just wanted to uh, check with you. So one is, you know, I know, for example, there, 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 you, you'd mentioned an attacks on, on freedom of speech and the moving of the Overton window, et cetera. And I know that there's a, um, the UK government has um, some kind, it's called the UK Online Safety Bill, I believe, where they're proposing to, uh, you know, enforce um, encrypted app providers to kind of compromise, I guess, their encryption in a way. I mean, they, they, they don't say it that way, but, um, you know, they, they want to enforce some kind of um, scanning of user data, um, um, in order to, to catch things like that, because they, they say it's to protect the children and to stop terrorists for the usual um, reasons. But um, is, the, is this something, and I know that the Signal have spoken out about this, and I think there's several others that have, um, but is it something that concerns you? And do you, do you see a day in the future where, for example, you, you would be kicked out of the App Store? Or uh, do, you have, do you have any thoughts about that? Uh, I think uh, that, uh, unfortunately, Politicians right now have a lot of wishful thinking, and this is going to be another example of legislation that will be dead on arrival. That's why I, I don't think I'm... I, I, look, users ask this question a lot. I, I don't think it's enforce, implementable or enforceable uh, on a wide scale, right? Because like, what, what are you going to do about open source software? What are you going to do about which we are, right? Uh, what are we going to do about people being able to run their own copies? What? Uh, so I, I guess we'll leave and we will see. And I think uh, my kind of assessment is obviously this, this law shouldn't be passed. That's clear, right? It's nonsensical and it's un uh, unimplementable and it's unenforceable. And it best it result in a huge loss of but I think the worst consequence, it's almost like GDPR, right? It didn't result in, in real increase of privacy. It just resulted in some sort of a privacy theater when lots of companies wasted lots of resources and completely intrusive and annoying uh, cookie warnings, which are even more privacy violation than it was before, right? So you effectively installed on some third party plugins to, to ask about your consent yeah, anyway, so it's a, it's a distraction. So, so my, my kind of, my kind of uh, looking at the crystal ball, we don't know the future, right? We don't know what will happen. Uh, I think trying to do something about it right now is premature, just because uh, when you're in early stage product or project, you have to focus on today's problems rather than on tomorrow's problems, right? If you focus on tomorrow's problems, you just die. <clears throat> because nobody will need you. You have to think about the more problems, of course, but in a limited way. So I don't think this law, even if it's passed and even if it's enforced and even if there is like uh, during the time that, that that is granted to adopt it, uh, nothing changes. I think it's a problem which is two, three years away from now. That That's first, right? So so it has to pass first and then there will be some period when you have to comply, right? You, you, you kind of be asked to comply on the day it's passed. You understand, right? So, like, there, there may be, there will be inevitably a period through which the technology companies will have to comply if it's passed, right? Which is already a big if. So, so my yeah, 
so my assessment is like we have like 20% probability it will be passed. Uh, and then we will have one year uh, for implementing this law. And we already observe extremely intense lobbying against this law, public lobbying, right, by large technology companies against this law. So I think uh, the chances are it's not going to be passed. And even if it is passed, during the time that's provided to implement it, the decision will be made either to suspend it or revert it or extend this period. So I really don't think this is something we should, or any of our users should worry about right now. It's, it's, it's effectively a marketing theater that provides marketing opportunities for companies that have end-to-end -end encryption like Signal or WhatsApp, and they obviously use it. And I, I just don't enjoy participating in marketing theaters, so, so I'm kind of ignoring this mostly. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, th I think we should all ignore this law. And uh, what, what, what people living in the UK should do is to write their MPs, just express their view and say, hey, this doesn't make sense, this law is unimplementable, damaging. It's not gonna achieve what it aims to achieve. For anybody with a, like 10% of the brain, it's crystal clear that this law is not going to achieve what it aims to achieve. It's not gonna incre increase safety. It's not gonna fight terrorism. It's, it's uh, at worst, it will like, even if it's implementable, it will open uh, real people to crime and to identity theft and to all sorts of pathological consequences. But what more likely is going to happen is a huge waste on legal and technical compliance without any real change. So the the idea that it in some way will help to fight terrorism or crime or child or whatever, so like, I think it's just like, it just never happened like that, right? So whoever the, are the perpetrators who this law is trying to fight will simply move to other channels, but the channels will be open to compromise from malicious parties, that's that's what will be achieved. I mean, it's kind of obvious, right? So why we even talk about that? So whatever is the motivation to brand this law around, they are different, right? So I don't think we should. I, I think I think given how early stage simplex chat project is, I don't think we should be too concerned about it right now. Yeah. And obviously, yes, if it is passed, then we'll obviously be analyzing. We will be preparing a legal response. We'll be preparing a legal position. Uh, but I think it's also a mistake to broadcast this legal position too early, right? Because why, why? We, need to, we need to see the final law, we need to understand what the requirements are. Uh, there is a good chance we simply don't uh, need to comply because of the size or because of some other issues or whatever, right? So even if it's passed. But I would say to, right now it's, it's, it's a big if that yeah. it's passed. Yeah, and, and and you mentioned that um, Simplex is, is fast, it's free and open source. I believe I got it from the F-Droid <coughs> store anyway, so you know, so there's always, there's always going to be that option, right, where people can download for themselves the the source code. They could build the if they're the APK themselves, or they could download the APK um, and 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 install themselves, right? There's there's there's, there's really no way that the governments can 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 prevent that. I, th I think it will result in some compliance. Like worst case scenario that may happen is some sort of compliance theater, like we have GDPR. So effectively, some uh, expensive legal communication, some expensive technical measures that don't really solve any problem, but create an impression of complying with the law. We've seen it on multiple occasions, and uh, I think that's that's what's this is the worst case outcome because obviously, whatever creates waste for the businesses somehow has to be. I mean, consumers are paying for GDPR, right? So, like, as a result of GDPR, we, we pay the price as consumers. We didn't get any better privacy because of GDPR at all, right? So, and that's what is uh, possible here. It's bad, but it's not end of life, right? I don't think that uh, 
like nobody in their right mind will agree to their communication being scanned, right? So people will just go out of those networks, right? So yeah, yeah, I I, I tend to agree with you. I, th I, th I think we also we we also saw that with Apple, where they they tried a similar thing, where they were doing local scanning of people's data on their machines, and there was a pretty strong pushback to that. And of course, they've rolled but that actually, out. Actually, I think that actually did happen. I think I think they do it now. Oh yeah, I think this is this is happening right now. I think, oh yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I mean, this is one of the reasons I I, I escaped from the Apple, um, you know, ecosystem. But um, I think they have. I mean, at least with iCloud, they, they claim now that they've enabled end-to-end. Uh, -end. You you can enable end-to-end -end encryption. Um, but yeah, I, I don't I don't personally trust it because it's Apple and it's it's closed source. Um, but yeah, I listen. I, I I really appreciate you you spending the time today to go through so many things. There's so many of the things I, I wanted to talk about, but um, we you know we've kind of, we've kind of come up to to uh, to our time here, and so I thought we could um, wrap up with some final thoughts. Um, and uh, I'm known as as Duma Dash within the group. You can probably tell we've 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 spoken about some pretty. Uh, I mean, it's, it's it's a very important conversation, but maybe. Maybe it's a little, <laughs> a little, a little negative at times. Um, and so I thought maybe we could, if you were um, of, of that mind, at least, um, um, uh, finish with some maybe some some more positive thoughts. Because I noticed on the um, uh, opt out podcast you'd done with uh, with Seth, you, you had some really um, kind of kind of inspiring um, things that you'd said. Maybe you're just in a good mood that day, but um, you'd, you'd kind of spoken about. Um, um, you know the the kind of vision you had for the future of of even things like intergalactic uh, communications, um, and and it was just it was just really 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 cool to to to, to finish that way. I thought the show was really good at the opt out um, show you did. So if you were of that mind today, I, I, I wondered if you maybe you could share with us some some kind of optimistic vision that you have of. I'm super optimistic about uh, privacy in the future, right? I think. We simply came through the phase of technological development, which was absolutely needed and by, necess by necessity had to be centralized because we, we, like 20 years ago, we simply didn't know what's needed, what technologies are needed, what technologies will work, what user experiences will be viable. It was all a period of intense experimentations and learning, et cetera, et cetera. And privacy became a collateral damage in this process, right? Because to understand what people want, you need to know what people do. And to know what people do, you have to observe them. And like, we would never learn what we know now about what people want from technology if, if technology was evolving in any different way, right? So, and, and again, the cycle of uh, technology being centralized could have happened earlier, right? So like, if not Netscape uh, making web commercially viable, uh, then, then we wouldn't have an open web, right? So like, maybe it's wrong to attribute the openness of the web to a single company, but to me, it feels like, like given what they did, they invented cookies, they invented SSL, they invented JavaScript, introduced it all in the browser and effectively converted the browser from area only viable for enthusiasts to mass market products, right? So like, I, I'm not sure if it would have happened without them. Maybe it would, maybe somebody else would have done it, but maybe not, we, we don't know that. So, so currently we are at a stage when people increasingly realize that they want uh, software technology services and products, but they don't want to compromise their privacy. And today this realization exists in a very small group of people, but this group is growing, right? So if we extrapolate this, then there is a good chance that uh, like everybody eventually wants privacy. That's what we're betting at, right? That privacy becoming a mainstream requirement. And I think 
the only way to provide privacy on scale, like in some kind of extrapolates in the future, right, is to have much more data stored locally on your devices. The vision, the vision I was talking about for computing devices was client-centric computing, right? Like today, you you want to buy a book, you have to go to Amazon, you have to download the book, let's say it's a digital book, right? So, and Amazon knows which books you are reading, which is also a privacy compromise, right? So like, uh, and then that's, that's not, uh, that's not the future that, uh, that, that necessarily is right for us, right? So we, if you want to be truly private, right, I want to be able to read any book ever written, but I don't necessarily want any intermediary to know which, which books I'm reading, right? So like it should be by consent, but how is it even possible? So the current technology solution and current technology stack is simply not built for that. And uh, many technologists would say it's impossible, right? So how else it can work, right? Because like somebody have to give you the data and when they give you the data, it means that they know which data they give you and that by definition, you don't have any privacy, right? So, but particularly when I was saying uh, two years ago that we created a protocol that allows to deliver messages without any kind of user identity, everybody was saying, oh man, you must be lying or an idiot, right? So it's, it's technically impossible. Of course, you have to have user identity if you want to deliver a message because how else it can possibly work, right? So interesting thing is us not seeing how something can work doesn't mean that it's impossible, right? So I think, uh, and to me, the realization of the future of technology came through the conversation with one user when they, when somebody was able to articulate what they want on, on an example of sending a simple message, right? They say, I want to have certainty that if they agree to the user with my contact, that I send them the message, this message is deleted in one day. I want to have a ironclad certainty that this will happen. And my first response was, man, it's impossible. They can write, run a modified software and you have no control. Once the data left your device, uh, all you have is their pinky promise to delete the message, but you can't enforce it. And say, no, but that's all I want. <laughs> and that made me thinking, right? It was a conversation about a year ago. Uh, so it made me thinking, okay, how, how can it be possible? Because like, if there is a problem, there should be a solution. Uh, so, and I think the solution is always ideas that have been experimented with blockchains and digital rights management, et cetera, et cetera. So effectively, a, a system of smart contracts on the level of CPUs, so let's say if, if CPU accepts a piece of data, there is some digital rights attached to it, which says this data must be deleted in 24 hours, and there is no way to circumvent it other than using some other CPU. And CPU is exceptionally expensive to design and develop, therefore, it won't be replaced. Software can be deployed. So effectively, it should be enforced on hardware level. So I think if, if technology evolves to the point to support uh, distributed rights management on the CPU level in a way which is extremely expensive to circumvent, and again, nobody needs impossible, right? So like nobody's going to uh, create a new CPU simply to steal $10 book or $10 movie, right? So like nobody's going to bother doing that. So if, if you have a CPU architecture that enforces distributed rights management, rights management, then your device can simply hold all the books ever written without you having the right to accept this book. And the book can have a price tag attached. So effectively, having the ideas of smart contracts that currently are being experimented on blockchain, if you try to invert it up inside out and have those in smart contracts executed by CPUs, and effectively giving you access to some digital content in exchange for your money 
without content distributors or creators knowing that you have received the success, but nevertheless being properly paid for that. That may be the architecture for privacy. And that's what that was, was the vision that I was talking uh, at Seth's podcasts. So effectively, uh, 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 some sort of technological framework to manage, manage digital rights and enforce rights of third parties on your device and provide you access to information without you explicitly asking for this information. In this case, you'll obviously need much larger storage on the device. You would need, say, petabytes storage on your pocket instead of terabytes. And you would have to download each new content as it appears rather than as you want to consume it. But it kind of flips the cloud architecture inside out and it provides ultimate privacy. So nobody no longer knows which movies you watch, which books you read. And they only see the financial transactions that they, they, they would know the volume of calls, right? Because the money has to change hands, but they don't necessarily need to know what are you paying this money for. And yes, it also creates the more resilience to the information. It creates some sort of a, almost like a uh, redundancy in storage of all the information, right? So like, and it enables uh, travel as well, right? So if you, if your device has all the information, then you can go somewhere where there is no internet and still have access to this information, which seems kind of important for survival of humanity in the long term, right? To be able to access information without having internet. Yeah, that's, um, that, thank you for ending us on that, on that note. I hadn't thought of it that way, although, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because it, the issue for me uh, with, you know, DRM is not so much the, the paying for things, um, you know, I want to pay for uh, good good content, but it's 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 the fact that these days it almost like you have to KYC yourself just to buy a, a book or a, or a cup of coffee, or it's ridiculous the amount of information you have to give over. And so, yeah, if you if we could re realize that vision where you could preserve your privacy walls, but at the same time respecting the the content creators, um, you know, uh, and giving them their fair pay, then then that would be um you know, I could definitely get behind that um, that vision for the future. So, re really appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, I thought maybe just 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 to finish us off, you could um, you could point us to or point the listeners to where they can uh, download uh, Simplex or, or anything else you'd like to um, uh, point people towards. Please please use this time just to just to let people know where to find you. Uh, our website is uh, Simplex dot chat, chat. Uh, you can find uh, the links to all the applications there to all the app stores they also have a blog there uh with, with all the release announcements and uh anything that's changed in the apps so by the time you listen to this podcast we will certainly release version 5.2 or maybe even 5.3 uh so that that should be uh addressing lots of stability issues that some users experience today. And also we are planning to uh, publish in the announcement, probably of the version 5.2, our plans for uh, the future of communities on Simplex, how we're going to reconcile this uh, kind of seemingly unreconcilable difference between privacy and community participation. Uh, because if, even our users often can't wrap their head around how is it even going to work and why, why it's so important. How. So yeah, that, that, that's a very interesting product that we're aiming to release in the beginning of the next year, uh, which, which effectively will uh, convert current groups to communities. So that, that's, that, that we all very much look forward to. And anyway, thanks a lot for listening and for inviting me, Dash. Uh, that, was, that was an interesting conversation.
Thank, thank you, Evgeny. Thank you so much for spending your time with us um, today. And we thank you for listening to us today. You can find us on Twitter and Noster at Tokyo Citadel. You can find us on our main site, tokyocitadel.com. And please check out our guests that, that you heard today. Support us on the Fountain app with a thousand sat boost. Or head on over to the site and hit us up with some love over there. Building sovereignty, privacy, and hope into the Tokyo Citadel. See you next time.